Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week, we were joined by Dr. Bill Kent, a cardiac surgeon at the University of Calgary, to talk about minimally invasive techniques in cardiac surgery. We were curious to learn where MIS techniques fit in an era of rapid evolution in cardiac surgery, and particularly with the advent of new catheter-based valve replacement techniques. Dr. Kent had a number of important insights into the introduction of new technologies in surgery and the challenges associated with trying something new. You know, I grew up in Sarnia, Ontario, uh, Canada. I um, I grew up in a family that with no no doctors. So the, the fact that I've ended up here as a heart surgeon was uh, would have been an unlikely path, I think. Um, my uh, father was a judge, and I kind of felt that I would follow in his footsteps. And then as I learned more about it, I thought mm, not quite suited out suited to uh, follow that career path. So. I actually uh, did a um, undergraduate degree at the University of Western Ontario, and I uh, specialized initially in in a liberal arts degree. I became interested in uh, uh, psychology, actually, and I did a psychology undergrad degree. Uh, through that, I got interested in biopsychology and neuroscience, uh, and through that path, I became interested in medicine. So I went into um, medical school after doing a master's in neuroscience. Uh, I did my master's at uh, University of Western Ontario, and I did a, a, a medical degree at Queen's University. I um, did a uh, general surgery residency, also at Queen's University. And at the end of my training in general surgery, I became interested in uh, cardiac surgery. I think, you know, our, our career paths are often determined by our mentors. And I, I had a real good mentor at Queen's who was a cardiac surgeon, and as I was uh, finishing my general surgery training, uh, he sort of said to me, I spent a lot of time with him. I thought I could learn a lot from this guy. And he sort of said, why aren't you doing cardiac surgery? And I said, no, I'm very happy in general surgery. I'm, I'm enjoying this, the career I'm going to have in it. And, and he sort of said, well, I really think you should do cardiac. And, uh, and then uh, so I said, well, I mean, I don't know. It's not sort of what I was planning on doing. He said, you know, I'm going to look into some programs and see if there's just an option for you. And I said, well, sure. I mean, might like entertain it slightly. He came back to me the next day and said, I got you all lined up for a, a position in cardiac surgery in Edmonton. Uh, so, I, you know, it's funny. You know, you have often fall into a career path that you didn't really previously determine. And uh, I, I really, this was a default sort of thing. So um, I ended up in training in Edmonton cardiac surgery. And uh, that's how, that's, that's where things started. Long-winded it's, answer, but it was a circuitous path. You know, it's it's so funny how often, right? We we see that sort of circuitous voyage as as you uh, as you describe it, and people who are real successful in life, whether it's in medicine or elsewhere. And I totally agree. I mean, our, our mentors really do guide us, whether we 
have the consciousness to understand it at any given time or not. But uh, no, that's that's really cool. You, you know, as you and I mentioned, or as I mentioned to you before the, the start of the podcast, most of our listeners are not all, but most are general surgeons throughout really an international audience and and won't necessarily uh, be up to speed on on the latest advancements in cardiac surgery. I was wondering, you know, with that in mind, then if you could frame some of the real recent advances that, that you guys have seen on the on the heart side of things. And I'm curious in particular, you know, we all know you uh, locally and I think across the country as doing some really neat work with minimally invasive uh, valves. Um, I'm curious how you sort of worked your way into that and, and how that came about as well. Yeah, well, you know, there's a, there's a direct line from my work as a general surgeon and learning about uh, laparoscopic surgery that made minimally invasive valve surgery be an obvious fit for me when I became a cardiac surgeon. And I think uh, a lot of those skills I learned in general surgery are very transferable to, uh, to minimally invasive cardiac surgery. Uh, you know, we, as general surgeons, we sort of take for that for granted. It's so much a part of our training, using uh, scope, uh, doing lab coles. I mean, these are things you learn as an R1. Uh, that's not the case in, in cardiac surgery training. Uh, this is all, you know, all open surgery. So I had that skill set, and I felt that uh, using scopes and understanding how to do that really had a, an application in minimally invasive valve surgery. It's an exciting time, I think, in uh, cardiac surgery in that field. I think that um, it's similar to, you know, 30 years ago in general surgery when, you know, minimally invasive techniques were in their infancy. So I think we're maybe 10, 15 years into it uh, in cardiac surgery, recognizing that smaller incisions and less trauma, uh, less uh, bleeding early or post-operative uh, mobility, all that has a real impact on patient outcomes. So that's, that's uh, a very uh, eager to take that field subspecialty, I should say, in cardiac surgery forward. Can you describe to us, Dr. Kent, what minimally invasive valve surgery really looks like, uh, especially given our audience, as Dr. Ball said, is mostly non-cardiac surgeons? Sure, sure. So as uh, as we all know, most cardiac surgery is done through a sternotomy with an open approach, and sternotomy is a uh, a great approach for exposure. And uh, still, you know, over 90% of cardiac surgery is done that way. But there is uh, there's real limitation postoperatively in terms of mobility. So patients after sternotomy uh, can't use their arms uh, for six weeks. They can't drive. There's pain-related uh, issues with sternotomy. Um, we use uh, stainless steel wires to uh, support the, the sternum to allow it to heal. But there is that process, just like if you do an open reduction internal fixation of a femur, the same thing with a sternum, and it takes a while for that to heal. So it really limits your mobility post-op, and this is particularly true for patients that, uh, you know, are you requiring a walker or, or other issues like that. Um, on top of that, bone bleeds. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the returns to the operating room are a result of sternal bleeding after, in, after cardiac surgery. And that can be anywhere, you know, mm, you know, two to five percent of cases need to go back to the operating room for 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 bleeding related to the sternum. So, 
So the the approach with minimally invasive is to go uh, make smaller incisions and go between the ribs. So you know my, the most common approach I would use would be a right uh, you know fourth interspace mini thoracotomy, a five centimeter mini thoracotomy. And that gives me access um, with the lungs dropped on cardiopulmonary bypass. It gives me access to the pericardium through the right side, enter the pericardium, and then really good access to the mitral valve and the aortic valve. So it's really applicable to valve surgery the most, not quite so much to, to coronary surgery, just because you have to access all parts of the heart, but it, it can be done with coronary surgery too, uh, doing multiple mini thoracotomies. Uh, so, so interesting. I, I'm curious, does the robot play any part in either local or international uh, uh, approaches or is it, you know, the, the reason I'm asking, obviously, is that I'm biased. When when I was trained to use the robot in the U.S. as an HPB fellow, we were doing robotic whipples. But you know, the truth is, honest, honestly, that's a that's a marketing scheme that we really don't uh, engage in any sense in, in Canada at all. Is that similar in in valve work or totally uh, unrelated? I think it is, Chad. I think there's a parallel there. There's there's a lot of enthusiasm for using the, the robot, particularly in the U.S., and uh, not so much in Canada. I think that uh, there are some limitations, and I think they're similar. Uh, with, with scopes, we're able to do um, complex surgery through real small incisions, and that's the same in general surgery. And they, the, uh, the robot... When you're working in the small incision, the robot doesn't give you that much more of an advantage. I think, um, you know, having the range of motion within the uh, within the chest cavity might be an advantage. But on the other hand, you're losing that tactile uh, sensation and, and the, um, the whole uh, efficiency of the operation is not quite what it could be, I think, at this point with robotics. And... I, I I think robotics will come along and and there will be a role, but r right now I mean it's a you're spending at least twice as long in the operating room to do a to do an operation that with with a, a thoracoscope you could do and and you know much more efficiently at this stage. Yeah, Some would argue, so but I I feel that that's that's the, the the general consensus at this stage. Yes, that's so interesting. It sounds exactly like like our uh, our pancreatic head. Uh, yes. resection world for sure. Agreed. Uh, how then does does the the MIS technology that you're using interface with purely catheter-based approaches, whether it's in terms of indications or whether it's in terms of, of uh, expertise? Yeah. I, I, you know, I think the catheter-based approaches is, is, is another reason that minimally invasive surgery has been, been uh, blossoming lately. And you know, some of the technology that's used for transcatheter valve implantation. So, you know, in simple terms, valves can be collapsed down and so they're, it can be introduced through small sheaths, like nine or smaller French. Uh, and uh, so that technology has also allowed us to uh, collapse valves. So valves can be implanted through smaller incisions. So, you know, it's... Um, it sort of uh, pushed the field forward, and it's—I uh, mean—it's—it's it's also been a bit of a competition between surgeons and cardiologists. As surgeons start doing more valve work percutaneously, it's pushed us as surgeons to be better. It's been a good—it's uh, been a good thing. So competition's always good, right, Chad? <laughs> Competition is definitely good. Mm -hmm. um, so, in terms of obviously, you know, broad strokes, who qualifies for? 
uh, an MIS type approach when you're doing uh, a valve repair? Is it, it are most people amenable to that type of approach, or is it only certain uh, specific indications? Yeah, that's a good question, Mira. I think uh, early on in my experience, I would choose patients and I would image them. I'd, I'd scan them with a CT and I'd look for ones that were good candidates. And same in general surgery, you know, that you know the patients that are going to be more difficult, the larger or an obese patient, which is, um, you know, more of a technical challenge. Uh, you know, patients with comorbidities that uh, are, are certainly more high risk. Uh, so, you know, you don't tend to. Uh, see those as the best candidates when you start your experience but as you grow and your confidence grows and at this point uh, I would uh, you know over 95% of my mitral valve repairs are done MIS and uh, as your confidence grows with the procedure you certainly as a bigger patient population you can you can uh, benefit with that approach. So I'm curious, is this something that you learned during training or is this something that you, you picked up along the way? Yeah, it's, uh, as I said, a lot of these skills I learned in my general surgery training, transferable to cardiac. And then uh, I did get extra training. I had the benefit of, uh, you know, working here and being supported to travel to different places to, to learn techniques from surgeons that were, you know, had mastered the technique and then uh, I had good support here in, in Calgary to develop the program as well so again mentors uh, ability to travel and and see see other surgeons operate and it's it's a process and it's a learning experience it requires a lot of commitment but certainly something that I was I was very keen to learn you know it's it, it's challenging sometimes when you're starting a, a new technique especially when you have a well-established approach to doing this this operation that uh, you know is reasonably uh, well validated and has reasonably good outcomes. I'm I'm curious, mm. and we talked about this a little bit already, but how do the outcomes compare between these two approaches? You, you mentioned uh, there's less bleeding, perhaps. What what other kinds of benefits or not have you noticed from a minimally invasive approach yeah no glad you asked because uh we're, we're looking at that right now and you know it, it it's it's true in all kinds of surgery surgical research is a little tougher because um we aren't uh recruiting thousands and thousands of patients and giving them placebo drug versus uh versus a study drug so in in surgery you're going to have smaller numbers a lot of the early research is based on cohorts Doing meta-analyses and trying to trying to figure out the benefits is is a challenge, and particularly when you have a good standard of care. So, for example, a aortic valve replacement is a perioperative mortality of around one to two percent, and you know uh, outcomes outcomes are great. It's a good operation. So it's it's some some of the uh, uh, you know, qualitative outcomes that you have to look at it in addition. So we've done some work here. We found that since we introduced the minimally invasive approach for the aortic valve, we're seeing uh, less bleeding. So out of uh, 100 patients, only four will uh, require a blood transfusion. Uh, with a sternotomy, it's about 33%. And that's our, res our results from this center. We see less atrial fibrillation. So uh, about 20% uh, atrial fibrillation or less than uh, with a mini sternotomy or with a, a minimally invasive approach. And with sternotomy, you'll see, you know, 40% uh, uh, atrial fibrillation. 
In addition to that, uh, it's quicker mobility. So no no sternal precautions post-operatively. So they can use their walkers on day one. It's uh, earlier discharge by about uh, one to two days. And it's getting back to work, getting back to hiking the mountains. I had a, a, a patient recently who was a, a doctor who got back to his practice in uh, 11 days after surgery. So this is stuff that we're not... And we're not achieving with sternotomy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we'll learn more and more as we, uh, as we do more research on, on the benefits of this, this approach. What's your sense of the worldwide sort of adoption of MIS techniques, especially kind of given the, the things that you've talked about, about it, it being very challenging sometimes to, to move the dial on introducing a new technique or a new way of doing things? Yeah, and uh, there's always resistance because, um, and my my colleagues uh, would tell me, you know, why are you why are you making it so difficult for yourself? You got a great operation with excellent results. Like, why are you doing this? You're, you're putting the pain on yourself. But, uh, um, you know, you you see the benefit in the patients. You wanna you wanna push the field forward. You wanna do this uh, not only to advance the the field, but, you know, mainly help your patients. And it's, it's very rewarding when they, uh, uh, your, your patients sell you on it, really. They tell you how quickly they've got back to work, back to doing things, back to activities and how pain, minimal the pain was and all that. And that sort of, uh, that really drives you. Um, but until you start seeing the, those kind of outcomes, it is, it is a tough go at first. And I think that's why, uh, um, many surgeons are reluctant to. And so, uh, yeah, it requires, um, uh, you know, um, the data helps as, 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 you know, as more surgeons are convinced of the data and realize this is worth my while and I got to put effort into this, then the tide turns and more and more or people are sold on doing it. But uh, it's like anything else when you start at first. It's, you, you don't have all that many believers, but it grows. Yeah, the, it's it's interesting to reflect and, and talk about and think about the the introduction of of new technology or in, innovations mm. in general. And you know, you, you and uh, one of your partners, of course, wrote a really neat uh, editorial about the importance of patient centered metrics in evaluating these techniques. And I think that's sort of really what you're what you're um, touching on. Mm. I'm curious how how you guys, you and he, or you specifically approach partners in your group that perhaps would be um, a little bit more resistant to that to that change and and certainly it's not you know like they're not going to retire in the next couple of years how how do you how do you sell them how do you have your patients sell them how do you bring them into that fold and really show them benefit and, and convince them to to jump on the on the boat with you yeah and that's true i mean and you know what do what we all do right you you've got uh we all have our differences in our practices and you got to respect your colleagues for their opinions and the way they do things. And, and as surgeons, we, we've got to have a comfort level with things. And so uh, when I have a colleague say to me, like, I, I don't believe really in what you're doing in the sense that I've, I, I want to do things. This is the way I'm, co- I'm comfortable in, in doing this operation. Um, you can't convince me that I should do it your way. Uh, on one hand, I respect that. I mean, we we all have our own comfort level, and and you know, however you want to sort of get your patient safely through an operation is is reasonable. But you know, we it, it at the same time it is good for us to challenge each other, and it's good for us to challenge our partners and say, this is why I think this is better. 
I, the response I get from that is, yeah, well, show me the data. <laughs> and so it, it often comes sure. down to that. And it's on, it's on, it's on me and it's on all of us that are, that want to innovate. You, you do have to, uh, you do have to do the studies you, you, and you do have to, um, we're all evidence-based or at least we should be. So it, it does come down to that. And yeah, it's so it's it's so true. There there is an art to convincing mm-hmm. you know colleagues both locally and and nationally, even internationally, to to come along on that voyage. How, how was the actual um, sort of technical side of um, getting approval uh, to introduce a, a a new technique and technology like this from a from a nuts and bolts point of view? Was it was it difficult or was it quite reasonable? How did sort of the, the healthcare region that you're in uh, view that and uh, yeah. and deal well, with? Well, you know, in Canada, it's a, it, it it is a, it is a challenge, and I think uh, it's a good challenge to, um, y- you know, we're not introducing technology to uh, make money for a hospital. We're introducing new technology, and we're innovating. Uh, for the betterment of the patients and patient outcomes, so that's a good measuring stick, and that's that's how we're measured. So, so I think if I've always found if we can demonstrate that uh, that this is going to be better for patients, um, and it's not cost prohibitive, we we do have to be cost conscious about some of these things. Uh, then it's it it does become an argument that can be that can be made and. I've uh, I found you know of course there's there were some battles early on in terms of you know you want that cross clamp that costs like 20 grand for for what what's wrong with this one but uh, you know for the most part um, there there is there is support and and if you're passionate about it and you can make a good argument that's that's based in good evidence and uh, benefit of patient care then I think you get supporters. I wanted to circle back a little bit to the, you know, the difference between this approach versus a catheter-based approach. Do you think the the big advantage still from a surgical uh, up approach to valve replacement is that is the longevity of the, um, the the valves going forward, or what do you think are the big advantages over, let's say, you know, a catheter-based uh, approach uh, to valve replacement? Yeah. So um, you know that that's a massive advance for 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 cardiology and cardiac surgery is percutaneous valve replacements and uh it's it's not so applicable to um many of the uh uh you know many of the tricuspid valve mitral valve only the aortic valve is really amenable to it and that's because it's it's got a more rigid annulus that you can balloon open a valve inside a stent and so uh, you know, it's uh, it, it saved a lot of patients the morbidity associated with uh, with surgery, and um, but the thing we don't know is long term outcome. So, is there a consequence of collapsing down a valve and crimping it up and putting it through a, the femoral artery? You know, is there is there a consequence of that? So, we we don't have uh, 20 year data like we do in surgical valves. So that's uh, still to be uh, determined. But you know, I gotta say it's gonna it's gonna be at least 50% of aortic stenosis patients are gonna be managed with uh, transcatheter approaches, particularly the high risk ones. And, and the technology is gonna advance, and it's probably gonna be more and more and more. So it's a uh, it's a good thing for patients. It's certainly less less invasive, less traumatic, e- much easier recovery. Uh, one of the last things that we wanted to ask you. 
um, which I think is, is quite topical based on some of your comments in, in terms of the synergy between your general surgery training and, and, and really pushing the envelope and pushing hard with regard to innovation in cardiac surgery is that link. What, what is your sense of, of direct entry cardiac surgery programs, which it, it, you correct me if I'm, if I'm off here, but it seems to be the, the standard for a while, at least in this country. What, what do you think the pros and the cons are of, of that? Yeah, model? real good question, Chad. I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm a bit biased on this, as you might guess, because I train as fully as a general surgeon, and I think there's a tremendous benefit to that. I think that uh, I, um, in addition to learning the transferable skills in general surgery, uh, I, I, it took me a while to learn if I was suited f- for a career in cardiac surgery. And I think that uh, direct entry program is maybe a more efficient way to do it. But there, there are, there are a, a, a lot of uh, medical students that go directly into cardiac surgery that realize they're not cut out for it. And it's, uh, it's, um, it's a unique, uh, uh, I guess I would say, that there's uh, more latitude to f- form a, a practice that's suited to you in cardi in, in sorry in general surgery, in cardiac surgery you gotta you gotta have, have an academic practice uh, for sure, with uh, the associated uh, research and administrative demands. Um, and, and it's busy. It can't be sort of an outpatient practice at all. And, and the operations are long. And, um, you know, so everybody's not suited to that. So I think uh, it takes a bit to, to figure out if, if, if you're that kind of person. And, um, you know, in, in uh, general surgery, you got a lot more options. You can do that sort of academic practice like you do, Chad, with, with all those administrative and research responsibilities. But you can also have a, a community practice. And I don't think people know in medical school, uh, exactly um, what kind of practice they want to have. They learn that as they go through their residency training. And and so I think that's a downside. And there are a lot of uh, direct entry uh, cardiac surgery residents who end up not finishing and uh, or transfer out. And I think the proportion of that is higher. I don't have data for you in that, but I have, uh, I can tell you that's true. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Once again, thank you again for joining us. The, one of the questions we ask everybody, almost everybody on the on the podcast is, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a trainee, what would that advice be having had the career that you've had thus far? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I think, um, I think, you, you know, your, your uh, career becomes really hard in residency. And if, if I could, so there was a point at the end of my uh, residency training into fellowship where I almost thought it wasn't worth it. And I think uh, if I, I think I'd almost go back and give myself a pep talk, say this is hard, but it's it is the most rewarding career that, that you can have. And once you get out in practice and you um, are gain confidence as a surgeon and you start to see. Uh, the real rewards and the and the benefits that you do for patients, and you can't understand how uh, rewarding that is as as a resident. And so when when you get there, um, I got to say, to me, it's been it's been the most rewarding career I could ever hope to have. And so uh, even in those dark days of no sleep and slogging it away in residency, it's it's really something to to um, that makes it all worthwhile. So 
if I could go back and tell myself, you know, it's okay. Like, you know, you're going to be fine and you're going to enjoy this as, mu as much as, uh, as much as I ended up um, enjoying it, it's, it, it, it'd be helpful. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again. Thank you.